Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello and welcome back to Godsplaining. I'm Father Gregory Pine, and I am joined here today by Father Jacob Bertrand Janzik. Father Jacob Bertrand Janzik, I don't know why I repeated your name at length twice. It felt right at the time. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, things are things are just great. <laughs> <laughs> so, as is our custom, we are recording in two separate rooms because that affords us the opportunity to maximize on audio and video quality. But we are actually in the same building, just on different floors. So we are in Cincinnati, Ohio, at St. Gertrude's Priory, where uh, the Dominican Friars run a parish, and also where we have our novitiate. So Father Jacob Birch and I, we were here uh, 2010 to 2011. I hope I don't give away too much by just saying specific dates. I, I, I suppose I didn't say your age. I don't know that you're sensitive. Well, who cares? Just keep going, Father Gregory. Um, yeah, so we're here at the novitiate. Uh, in anticipation of the novices, well, the new novices being vested in the habit of St. Dominic, and then the current novices uh, making profession. So this is a, a pilgrimage that you make each year. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know, insofar as our, our listeners are somewhat interested in Dominican life, maybe just a word or two about what that is, why it's cool, uh, why you come. Why I come here, or why? <laughs> I have no idea what you're asking <laughs> well, me. <laughs> Yeah, why you come here? Uh, like, what what have you to do with postulants yeah, and novices? See. Yeah, well, <laughs> in case you didn't know from our one hundred and whatever other episodes, I'm our director of vocations, so uh, I handle all of the men who are thinking about or applying to the province, and my job ends when they enter the novitiate, basically, uh, when they start their first year of formation here in Cincinnati. So uh, that year begins by um, by receiving the reception of the habit, which is called vestition because they are vested. The new men are vested in the habit. Um, And that happens every year on the Feast of St. Dominic on August 8th, except when it doesn't, uh, which was the case when Father Gregory, myself, the other hosts of God's planning, we received the habit in 2010 on August 7th in the evening because the 8th fell on a Sunday. So we received the habit uh, after uh, like the vigil of St. Dominic's feast day as they will this year too. So that the 14 new men entering the novitiate will, will receive the habit on uh, the evening of the 7th. So I think that's Saturday. I think that's Saturday evening. Um, and they'll receive their religious names and they'll be called brother so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And they will be, you know, starting their novitiate year. And then at the end of that year, a year and a week later, they, uh, if they persevere, they make their simple vows. So that's on the Feast of the Assumption on August 15th. So as we call them, the old novices will be making their first vows, their temporary vows on August 15th, and then be assigned to the Dominican House of Studies in D.C. Uh, well, they will begin their um, their their formal studies for the priesthood. So every year, I have the pleasure of coming out to uh, to Cincinnati to be at vestition and profession. So at least since I've been vocation director. So, boom, awesome. I think this is well. This might be my first time back in a long time. When I was assigned in Louisville, Kentucky, it's just maybe like an hour and 45 minutes. He says maybe like, and then says a very specific amount of time, uh, downriver from Cincinnati. So I would come up to visit with the community here with some frequency. But since having been assigned in D.C., I haven't, I haven't made it out to Cincinnati much. So it's been cool to walk the halls uh, somewhat nostalgically and recall old times, most of which I've forgotten, or most of which have kind of blurred together uh, in a indistinguishable soup of like recalling and forgetting. But 
enough of that. Let's get to the serious topic of today's episode and discussion, uh, which is the literature of one Donna Tartt. Mm. So, Father Jacob Burchin, if you would, introduce us to Donna Tartt and her work. Sure. Yeah, so Donna Tartt is a novelist who happens to be one of my favorite novelists. Um, I really like I was, I was going to say I really like and then say really love, and then I was going to sound like I really like love. Um, but what I meant, I meant to give a greater kind of superlative. I really love two of her, two of her three novels. Um, so we'll talk about two of the three novels in a few minutes. But just to kind of set the scene with who Donna Tartt is. Um, so again, she's an American novelist born in 1963 in Mississippi, and she grew up in Grenada, Mississippi. Um, she attended the University of Mississippi uh, for, I think, just a year, maybe two semesters, three semesters, but I think just a year, and then was encouraged um, to transfer uh, to Bennington College. I don't know why, and I don't know where that, I know that's in, Missis- in Mississippi, but someone sort of like discovered her writing, one of her professors, kind of her genius, and encouraged her to go somewhere where she could be better educated, trained, tutelaged. Is that a word? Um, I don't think so. Don't let it stop you, though. Okay. Uh, where she could be better tutelaged in her writing skills. Um, so she graduated graduated from Bennington College in like the mid-80s, I believe 86, um, and then commenced her writing career. Uh, since that time, she's written three novels, um, each about 10 years apart. Uh, so in 1992... Her first novel, The Secret History, was published. And then in 2002, yep, 2002, her second novel, The Little Friend, was published. And then in 2013, uh, the the third, her third novel, The Goldfinch, was published, um, which is probably her most well-known work. Uh, She won a Pulitzer in 2014 for The Goldfinch. And then in 2019, it was made into um, uh, like a a blockbuster movie. I don't know what you call them, feature film. I don't know what you call them. But it was made into a movie. And one of the characters, one of the the supporting characters was played by, there were a number of famous people in it. Who, did you see the movie, Father? Who who played the the father of the main character? Um, Was it uh, Owen, Owen Wilson? Was it Owen Wilson? No, I haven't seen the movie, right? But um, I can base all of my responses on off it's a trailer that I may have seen. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't know actors. I one of the other characters was played. One of the supporting characters was played the by Mike from Stranger Things. That's also not his real name. It's his go. character name, but he was Boris <laughs> in this. Um. So, uh, yeah, Donna Tartt. I guess the other kind of salient point is that she is a convert to Catholicism. Uh. We'll talk about some of the themes in her writings in a little bit, but at least um, it's important to mention that she's a convert uh, to to the faith. So, um, yeah, Donna Tartt, that's what I know about her. Boom. Mm -hmm. Well, insofar as good literary analysis usually begins with the description of the works themselves, maybe we can turn in that direction. Uh, I recall having having overheard a conversation at a lunch table. It was in a priory. I will not say of what religious order. Okay, it was it was Dominicans. I won't say in what city. Okay, it was Washington, D.C. I won't say who. Okay, there, I'll actually stop. Uh, but I heard a, a guy say something to the effect of, he was interrogating another one of the brothers. He said, have you written the response yet? And he says, or excuse me, he says, have you, have you read the book yet? It was some assignment in whatever class. And he says, no, but I've written my response paper. <laughs> so uh, I suppose the kind of classic style of Dominican literary analysis would just be to respond to the thing without having read it, which is what I'm going to do in part during this episode. But you having read it, 
Uh, maybe you can lay out for us a little bit of the plot um, of the secret history, uh, and then we can do a little bit of the plot of the goldfinch, so yep. as to have a skeleton on which to uh, examine a skeleton on which to examine some of the themes. So as to have a skeleton, so as to flesh out the themes. So secret history. Yeah. So we're we're as in Father Gregory's list of two. There, you'll notice we're leaving out the little friend. Um, it's okay. It doesn't really do it for me. I really love the other two books. So in the interest of time and in the interest of my interests, we're not going to talk about The Little Friend. Uh, but The Secret History is our first novel. As I mentioned, it was written in 92 or published in 92. And essentially, the story is a story of six friends who are attending a sort of elite New England college, which is called, it's a fictional college, but it's called Hamden College. Um, and the book basically has four parts, a very, very brief, like couple page intro, uh, part one, part two, and then a very, very brief epilogue, a little longer than the intro. But I mentioned that because it is in the introduction that you learn that um, these six friends, well, five of the six friends end up killing one of one of these six friends. Um, so the story is about these, uh, these six friends told from the perspective of one of them, whose name is Richard. Uh, he's a transfer to the college, to Hampton. And when he transfers to the college, he wants to study classics. And there is a classics professor who kind of has this kind of guru status and only allows certain students to, to study with him. And there are only five students studying with him, um, a brother and sister named Charles and Camilla, uh, and then three other men, Henry, Bunny, Edmund is his real name, but Bunny is his nickname, and Francis. And the story goes... Um, basically follows their friendship, their uh, bizarre kind of attachment to this professor, their bizarre kind of desire and attachment to kind of live a sort of like quasi-virtuous pagan kind of life, um, and how this gets them into trouble, and how uh, Bunny or Edmund is is killed by, ultimately by Henry, but by the, how the five plot uh, Bunny's death. This is all explained in the two-page introduction. Um, and then the book basically details the first part of the book, the incidents leading up to the murder, which I won't really flesh out in case you want to read the book. And then the immediate aftermath in the second part of the book. And then the brief epilogue kind of a, a number of years later. Um, I guess, I don't know. I think, I think we'll kind of leave it there as far as like a plot synopsis for the book. And I think, think fleshing out some of the themes uh, with the goldfinch is, is going to be a little bit more helpful than kind of, Re, you know, talking about the same things twice with respect to each book. So there you have the secret history in in a nutshell, really. Nice. And then for the goldfinch, we'll try somewhat helpfully to avoid spoilers, uh, unless it becomes necessary for thematic purposes. But here you have a story of one particular young man, Theodore Decker, and the iconic scene in the book is that he goes to uh, the Met with his mother, and they're touring the museum. And while touring the museum, he's especially captivated by this one painting called The Goldfinch by Fabritius, a Dutch painter, uh, I guess many of whose paintings had been lost in an explosion at like a gunpowder plant immediately adjacent to this particular painter's workshop who, who, who lived and worked during the 17th century. And as if by repetition or with history's way of repeating itself, he and his mother are present there when there's a, a kind of terrorist attack on the Met, or there's an explosion. Um, and in that explosion, his mother is killed. Uh, and in that explosion, he also finds himself, as it were, stealing the painting. So it's not something that's premeditated, but in the chaos of the explosion, he makes off with it. And then it becomes 
this secret that he carries with him for the rest of his, well, the rest of the part of the life uh, that Donna Tart recounts in the telling of the story. Um, and then there's, there's another significant event that takes place in that explosion. It's, there's an old man who's also dying. Uh, and he hands uh, this, you know, this main character, Theodore Decker, he hands him a ring and asks him to return it to his business partner. So when he does, he ends up meeting this man, Hobie, uh, and strikes up a friendship with him, ends up going into business with him. He meets, um, you know, like uh, basically a woman, a young, a young lady who is in the care of this deceased man's, um, you know, like business partner. And it's, you know, like what you have subsequently is just a kind of endless series of meetings and chance encounters uh, and dramatic stories that come about as a result of these connections. So the connection with the painting, the connection with this man and those in this man's life. Uh, I realize those are somewhat vague details, but um, this kind of comes to a head uh, later in his adolescence or in his like kind of early young adulthood in a series of <laughs> kind of wild encounters that defy uh, easy summation. But for a time, he goes to Las Vegas to live with his father. There, he meets his best friend, Boris, played by Finn Wolfhard in the movie, um, who imitates, you know, a kind of Russian accent, which I hear is awesome. Um, and that precipitates a real terrible downward spiral in his life, during which, you know, he starts using drugs and gets involved in everything that transpires in the ordinary course of a Las Vegas life. Um, but then, yikes. Yeah, things come to a conclusion. Maybe we'll leave off there and we'll just pick those 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 other elements insofar as they contribute to the telling of the thematic story. Um, all right, so right now we're poised to go into some themes, and we're also about halfway through the episode. So let's take a brief break, and then we'll uh, treat it on the other side of that. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. All right, folks, welcome back to Godsplaining. We are discussing Donna Tart, specifically the novels of Donna Tart, uh, and focusing on two of the three, The Secret History and The Goldfinch. So then let's pick up with some themes that uh, she entertains or themes that she explores in these books. Not that she said about writing these books in order to uh, draw these themes out necessarily, but in the telling of the stories, there is a way in which her preoccupations or her particular insights into reality uh, come into relief. So, Father Jacob Burchin, uh, why don't you lead out with one or two or however you many see fit? Yeah. One of, I, I guess this really isn't a theme in the writing, but a theme, I guess, of her writing or or the style of her writing um, in all three novels, but in these two in particular, uh, they she she really focuses on on the characters um so that sometimes the sometimes the novels are a bit slow or she spends a lot of time developing the characters and their personalities and their traits and like kind of allowing them to grow um not always in the best ways uh obviously with like with respect to the secret history when there's murder afoot uh you're not really um you're not really growing in virtuous things all, all that much, but she allows them, I guess, the space to grow and to become characters, um, take, you know, let them, they don't, I guess I'll put it this way, the characters don't serve a plot in, in the sense that they're, they're not there just to kind of advance a story, but they are in themselves the story. 
Um, and I really enjoy novels like that. Be, at least in my estimation, you really get to know them um, and, and kind of become part of the story in your own reading of it. Um, so that's just something that I, I would note uh, from from the outset with respect to her writing. Um, something, too, that I think is is perhaps more obvious in reading the novels and reading her things, and perhaps Father Gregory can comment on this, too, but is, is sort of the destructive role of that vice plays in, in the novels. Um, often, uh, she, sort of, she sort of paints virtue um, in like in the kind of via negativa or the negative way of of showing the opposite so rather than highlighting like growth and virtue often I think she highlights the way the subtle ways and sometimes the normal ways that vice disrupts and and destroys relationships and people and desires and these sort of things so as to elicit like the role that vice has or the role that destructive, kind of things have. So by way of example, The Secret History, most of the novel focuses on, um, as we've already said, the murder of one of their, one of one of these six friends by the five other friends. And mostly what is chronicled is sort of the disillusion of the, or disillusion, dis, not illusion. Disillusionment. Whatever. Thank you. The falling apart of, of their relationships, but also of the other five, their relationships between one another, um, but also their individual kind of lives and understanding of their life and how they live and how, just how they kind of slowly fall apart and trying to keep the secret and trying to um, trust one another in a rather untrustful setting and these sort of things. So um, in, in many ways, very, very different, but in many ways, she reminds me of, um, of, uh, of, uh, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters that focus on like a, you know, a devil forming his, his nephew, who's also being a devil rather than an angel forming an angel, how to be a good angel, those sort of things. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know in, in your reading of the goldfinch, if you saw this kind of theme come out, Father Gregory, but something that I think is pretty present, but also interesting to read. Yeah, I, I think that um, those the first point that you mentioned is related to this point, so that she gives primacy to characters and to their development. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, where some authors tend to be more characters first, and some other authors tend to be more plot or theme first. So like, for instance, C.S. Lewis, when, when describing the inspiration for the Chronicles of Narnia, he said that he saw a fawn holding an umbrella under a lamppost, right? So he had a, an image or, you know, he had a kind of inspiration, but that inspiration was personal as it were, insofar as one can have an interpersonal relationship with a fawn. Um, whereas when you read GK Chesterton and, you know, I've chatted about this with Father Bonaventure before on the podcast, he, he doesn't seem to care too terribly much about characters because the characters really do serve the plot uh, and they serve it in a way that's kind of servile. So, Chesterton's literary escapades don't really have much literary integrity. They're kind of like his essays or his novels, you know, just replete with insights, but they don't, you know, wholly take the form of a novel or of a short story. In this case, I think you're right to identify that when it's character first, it gives you a kind of scope for appreciating the fully human element. And I think that's one of the things that's so wonderful about literature is that it's a very humane art. Uh, You see your humanity represented to you, kind of handed back to you, as it were, in such a way that you can reclaim your own. And she exhibits a kind of patience uh, with the unfolding of the lives of her characters. 
uh, and as a result of which, it ends up seeming believable or credible. Because sometimes, you know, you read stories and you see a kind of impatience with character development such that it becomes overly didactic or it becomes, you know, just kind of fraught, as it were, with plot purpose in a way that, you know, makes it so you kind of lose touch with the human element. And now sometimes you're just, uh, you're circumscribed by the genre. So if you're writing a short story, you can't, you know, afford tons and tons of scope or you can't afford a lot of time and space to the developing of subtle and nuanced things. You have to be perhaps a little more violent, as it were, thinking there of like Flannery O'Connor. Um, so yeah, and then, and then one thing to which she devotes uh, this, this kind of scope for character development is to show devolution, progressive devolution. And I think it's, it's a challenge for us as a reader because oftentimes people tell a story of evolution. There's this kind of faith uh, in much modern literature that things will just get better by virtue of, I don't know, time or technology or something like that. But I think that in, in her writing, there's an honest acknowledgement that if you are to be saved, you know, you have to acknowledge the fact that you're going to be saved from a wreck. And the general tendency of humanity is towards the wreck. And, um, you know, she doesn't portray it in a way that's depressing or meant to depress, but rather um, it gives you clearer insight into the actual state of affairs. Because hope, if we're to speak of, you know, Christian virtues, hope isn't premised on, you know, a positive attitude, right, or optimism. Hope is premised on a genuine appreciation for what is. So I think that, yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of ways in which you could take that, the destructive role of vice, but certainly uh, that was my impression when, when reading The Goldfinch. I found that to be, to be really beautiful. I don't know if you have other thoughts about the same theme. Yeah, yeah I guess uh, by way of kind of looping in the Catholic thing, one of the things, and in some of her interviews, she's very clear um, and some of her very, so one of the things I guess we, I forgot to mention at the top is that she really doesn't have much of a Donna Tart that is, doesn't have much of a public personality or persona. She kind of avoids that and gives interviews rarely and these kind of things. But one of the things she mentions with respect to her, her converting to the faith is that she doesn't, um, she doesn't, you know, write like her faith informs what she writes because it's what she believes and what she practices, but she doesn't she's she's not a catholic novelist in the sense of she's not using her novels to teach things about the faith but rather writing novels to teach things about humanity so it's not divorced from faith but it's not as you know it's not an explicit kind of um use of 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 the art of writing to convey truths of the faith necessarily but obviously it does and one of these things is is in this destruction or devolution of the person is that rather than um, introducing a sort of Christ-like figure or Christ himself or grace into the stories um, to show the the sort of evolution of a person and the growth of a person. I think that, that her theme of this uh, or like a way by which Christ is presented and the truth of grace and hope, as Father Gregory was saying, is by removing it from the stories. Um, so through its absence, it is seen to be needed. Um, so there isn't a... Um, you know, there's not always a perfect happy ending and people don't always turn out terribly well. Um, and, and there's it's sort of through the absence of goodness that you begin to see the need for goodness itself. And I think that's a powerful way of of, of showing um, kind of through like the negative space, as it were, of, of the lack um, of, of the desperate need for uh, for Christ, for grace, for goodness, these sort of things. And I think this this kind of moves to the second one of the second themes that we wanted to talk about and um 
that has to do with like the desire to be loved or the desire to be known. And this pairs with this destructive reality because so often the characters, Theo, who's the main character in the Goldfinch, or Richard, who's the who's the narrator and one of the six friends, the 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 transfer to Hampton College in in the secret history, you both see that you see them both motivated in different ways, certainly, but motivated by the desire to be accepted, affirmed, loved, these these kind of things. And um, part of in reading the secret history, you kind of sometimes you you wonder, like, why are they doing this? Why are they acting like why don't they just stop? You know, why don't they put the brakes on? And of course, sometimes things snowball, you know, one thing leads to another and you kind of find yourself in a mess. But particularly with Richard, who enters late into the scene um, with this group of friends, you kind of have to wonder, like, why is he why you know why does he invest himself why does it's just so strange that he would but you can see as the story goes his desire to be accepted by the five friends by this professor to have a family to have somebody who loves you know to be loved to be part of um, as a motivating reality um, even too with bunny the one who they kill there's this desire for him that that he wants to be to be accepted by the others but just as incapable of it in so many ways and i think too i don't know I, you might I might be reading too much into it, Father Gregory, so correct me if you think so. But even in the Goldfinch, like the painting um, in some ways takes this takes on this role of 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 acceptance and love for Theo because you know it's he picks up the painting when his mother dies and it, it kind of has a central theme in all of his relationships, whether it's with his adopted family who he lives with for a while, whether it's it's with Hobby or Hobie, however you pronounce his name, who he lives with for a longer time with this girl Pippa, whether it's with his friend Boris, with his with his father in Las Vegas. This this painting always has like it's it's that one comfort. Um so I guess kind of weird to think that it's a painting that does this for Theo, but you can still, it's used as a kind of proxy in some ways to kind of draw out, elicit the theme of, of being accepted and desired and loved. Yeah, um, growing up, I had a friend who would say with frequency, I'm God's favorite. Uh, and that wasn't meant to be like, I'm God's favorite and you're loved less. But in the sense that I think each of us has the desire to feel, you know, seen, known, loved by God or by someone else, I think just kind of in general, but in a, in a peculiar way, in a specific way by God. And I think that, you know, our, oftentimes it's our parents who first mediate that to us. We gain the appreciation, especially from a mother's love, that we are loved unconditionally. And you see in the character of Theo that he has this wonderful relationship with his mother. And just at the very moment when that's taken from him uh, with the explosion at the Met, then he picks up the painting, and the painting becomes a kind of totem for the fact of his being special, um, because he he loses his grip on the fact of his being seen and known and loved with the loss of his mother. And yeah, the painting becomes a kind of sign of that for him. But it's fascinating that in the very same you know traumatic event of his life, he's given that ring by I guess it's Welty, which leads him to Hobie, which leads him to Pippa, which leads him to these relationships, which ultimately kind of lay the foundation for his true happiness. Um, they introduce people into his life that do communicate to him that he is loved and not like they don't make of him a personal project. They just genuinely see what's good in him in a way that he himself struggles to identify. And so I think, yeah, that's to identify this motivating desire of being seen, being known, being loved as the source both of noble aspirations of the human heart, but also of destructive behavior because you know, love is at the root of desire. It's at the root of delight or enjoyment. It's what drives us, right? 
Um, Pseudo-Dionysius speaks of love as a vis unitiva, as a unitive power, and it's going to wed us to the things that we lay hold of, whether those things be base or sublime. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's a really strong uh, and powerful theme, at least in the, in the book that I've read, in The Goldfinch. Yeah, and there's, there's a sort of, um, like, as, as you said, that especially in The Goldfinch with Theo, there's an, an inability of, for him, for Theo himself, to see um, that he is even loved by people, even imperfectly, but that he is even loved um, because of this sort of preoccupation, preoccupation, obsession with this painting, The Goldfinch. It really defines... Um, the reality of his relationships from his side and you know something that offers so much comfort is off is is so often a stumbling block you know there are scenes when he's kind of in these just edging on these intimate sort of vulnerable moments with other people in his life and he has to go not immediately but like later that night to go check to see if the painting is there to go look at the painting you know like those kind of things and it's just you kind of ache for him to um to just kind of let go and enter into reality um and in so many ways, we have our own kind of totems in our own lives that kind of prevent us from entering fully, whether that's into our relationship with the Lord or our relationship with other people around us. So I think Donna Tartt brings out in these novels and both in these two in particular ways um, or kind of to, to, to sort of elicit that reality that, you know, that that we want that to be loved, but we also often are our own worst enemies in that. Um, not because we're inherently evil, but we're just not good at, at seeing what's before us and seeing who we are. Um, so, and I, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a, a really, um, I don't know, prominent kind of thing, especially in the goldfinch. Yeah. Well, with that, we've actually, come to the end of our time maybe that signals the fact that we should do another episode on donna tart or just devote a whole episode to the goldfinch because i feel like we've just kind of scratched the surface and uh there's some really wild scenes at the end which uh yeah it's hard to say whether they are just the truest thing you've ever read or maybe the falsest thing you've ever read i've never concluded a book with so much bewilderment because i was yeah i don't know that i could say anymore without actually spoiling so uh there's a lot there and certainly you know we commend the reading of them to you, not in the sense that they're like edifying saint stories, um, and at the end of which you're going to be inspired to, you know, endeavor foreign missions in, you know, a spirit of utter destitution, uh, but in the sense that they, they do represent to you your humanity in a way that makes it harder, yeah, I guess, to, to defer big questions or harder to, mm, what would one say, to live something short of the truth. I think that's, that's part of her genius, is that she takes you by the hand and leads you deeper into the truth. So, all right, Father Jacob Bertrand, final thoughts, uh, a, co- a final commendation of Donna Tartt? Uh, yeah, I think uh, if you're looking, as Father Gregory said, for a novel that isn't all that heartwarming always, um, Donna Tartt <laughs> is, is the author uh, to check out, I think. Um, but it, but an author that is that is honest and really kind of draws you into what she is portraying and who she is portraying, particularly her characters, um, and really interesting and kind of sometimes, as Father Gregory said, too, kind of be- bewildering ways. But um, it, are are kind of novels that you kind of just dive into and and can't help but um, be part of. So there you have it, Donna Tart. Hopefully, she's coming out with Donna a fourth. Tart. I guess we're kind of coming up on seven or eight years uh, since the goldfinch. So we await with bated breath. Yeah, she's due.
All right. Um, so with that, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of God's Planning. We appreciate your efforts at liking and sharing and leaving reviews as they help us to get the word out uh, and to preach for the salvation of souls. Uh, let's see, exciting things that are forthcoming. Oh, we're going to start doing live splaining twice a month. So that'll be the second and fourth Fridays of each month. So that starts on the fourth Friday of August. That'll be August 27th. And then going forward from there, you can look for live splaining at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the second and fourth Friday of each month. And then in September, you'll see a few more guest episodes coming out. So to this point, we've been doing guests on the first Monday of each month. So we're going to pair that with an additional guest on the third Monday of each month. So just a little more content, nothing too overwhelming, nothing to overburden your podcast app, but just, uh, yes, things to get you through your commutes as more and more commutes are re-upped. And as we go from virtual life, maybe back in the direction of real life, unless that's not the case for you. It just seems it may not be for some. <laughs> Yikes. Um, so yeah, thanks so much to those who donate on Patreon. Uh, and thanks so much to, to all of you uh, for your prayers. And we promise to pray for you. All right. Until next time. Cheers and God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.